The next paragraph is, is the really good news. But in heaven, we'll only will good, and we won't will any evil. We're in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 9. The summary passage is 1 and 2, but I think I'm going to read 1 through 19. That was my intended sermon passage, and I, I couldn't get there. Um, but it's, it's taken as a unit. 1 through 19 is a particular unit. It breaks out into three parts. I'll mention that in just a bit. Our purposes will be primarily to unpack verses 1 through 2. But let me read those 19 verses for us. Acts chapter 9, verse 1. Hear God's holy and perfect word. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? He said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and it will be told you what you must do. The men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus, and he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus, Named Saul, for he is praying. And he's seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him, that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call upon your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine, to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and after laying his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales. He regained his sight, he got up, and he was baptized. He took food, and he was strengthened. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we love your word. We love your law. We love your gospel. We do pray, as we prayed earlier, that we would be in the Spirit on this your Lord's Day, that you would have mercy upon me as your preacher, that you, the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart would be acceptable, would be according to your, your word. Both the content would be correct, and even my manner, Lord, would be profitable to your people. And for your people, Lord Jesus Christ, who are purchased by your blood, May you conform us, Holy Spirit, into the image of the Beloved using your divinely inspired word. Lord, to your glory, to the benefit of your people, to the extension of your kingdom, we pray in the Redeemer's name. Amen. I've mentioned we have three sections um, here. Verses 1 and 2, everything is dealing with the convert. It's an aspect of conversion. Verses 1 through 2, we see... Saul, in his unconverted estate, we know that he's going to be the apostle to the Gentiles, um, the apostle Paul. Yeah, verses 1 and 2, Saul, when he was unconverted. 
Verses um, three through nine record Saul's conversion to Christ. I understand it's extraordinary. We'll look at that in just a bit. And then from 10 to the end of the passage, we see subsequent the conversion of Saul. He is joined to Christ's church there in Damascus. But my purpose really is to look at verses one and two. And I want to look at two things mainly. And we'll look at various things, subsections of those two main things. I want to look at the truth of conversion. Um, what conversion is not, what I don't, what I'm, the way that I'm not using conversion, what conversion is, and some other things associated with that. The other thing is I want to look at the example of an unconverted person. The Apostle Paul, who is Saul at this time in verses 1 and 2, unconverted Saul, he is, he's an object lesson. And the reason he's significant for us he's, he, is he's a member of the household of faith. He's an Old Testament Jew, as it were, and he's a teacher. So this is directly applicable to church members, directly, directly applicable to unconverted ministers, but it would be applicable to unconverted church members. Um, um, so that's my intention. If we look at chapter 9 in the context of the entire book of Acts, it's helpful to keep reminding, not in a redundant sense, but to keep reminding ourselves what the book of Acts is about. The book of Acts is about the carrying out of the Great Commission. The Great Commission is Matthew chapter 28, 18 through 20. Jesus has died for our sins. He's risen for our justification. He's just about to ascend on the Mount of Olives. He's just about to go back to heaven, to the glory that he had with his Father before he took human flesh. Now, Christ has glorified human flesh at the right hand of God, even now, forever and ever. But before he came to be our suffering servant, Christ is about to go back. And just as he is about to go back, he says to his men, I want you to go out to the whole world and make disciples of mine, disciples of Christ. So evangelizing the world, teaching the whole world what, what Christ commanded and, and um, baptizing them and so forth. And then Christ says, I'm with you to the end of the age. And then he goes away. And of course, he's, he's with us uh, by the power and the person of the Holy Spirit. So the book of Acts is about the carrying out of the Great Commission. It's about the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ, ministers of the Lord Jesus Christ, disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ being scattered to the four corners of the wind and we're busy evangelizing. Not everyone's an evangelist. Not everyone is called to be a minister, preacher, but all Christians have the good news within us. Galatians 2.20 Christ in us is going to come out of us and we have the words of eternal life and we're, we're scattered in a world that's a dark and a dying world and so we, we go forth with the world, the word of God and so we're busy evangelizing, testifying to the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in that, what's happening in the book of Acts is sinners are being called out of their sin and they're being called to come to the Lord Jesus Christ. They're, they're being saved. Now let's think of the, we're going to look at the idea of conversion um, this morning. I want you to think of the chapter that, that we just got through in chapter 8. And who did we see converted in chapter 8? It was the Ethiopian eunuch. And here is a man um, from Africa, he is converted to the Lord Jesus Christ. He leaves rejoicing, and we said last week, no doubt going back uh, to Africa, sharing the good news that Jesus loves and saves sinners. So we looked at the Ethiopian's conversion, and then here in this particular passage, we see Saul, who will become the Apostle Paul. We see his conversion, and then in chapter 10, uh, subsequent here, we see um, Cornelius, the centurion, the Gentile centurion. Um, he is converted to the Lord Jesus Christ. He holds a unique position because he's converted to Christ 
uh, in the new epoch, unlike the old epoch, he would have had to attach himself to Israel and then come to know the Lord God. But now in the new, in the freer, in the fuller administration of the covenant of grace, he comes straight to Christ. He doesn't need to join himself to old Israel. And so conversion, conversion, conversion. And I want to get at what we mean when we say um, conversion. Not, not everyone means the same thing when we speak about conversion. I want to say a couple different things. Most everyone here knows I was raised a Roman Catholic. And so not all Christians, and I'm going to use Christian in just the generic term, not all Christians use the word conversion to mean the same things. It's always helpful when discussing religious things, and I don't even mean debating religious things. I just mean expressing religious things to define what we mean or to ask what another person means. What do you mean by conversion? So in the church of my youth, they have a sacramental view of conversion, so they hold that uh, that the baptism is converting you to Jesus Christ. It is washing away your original sin. It's joining you really and vitally to Jesus Christ. So the sacrament is administered by the priest is converting you. That's one kind of view of conversion. Then there are other Christians, I'm not one of them, that hold to the whole of the Christian life is one long continuous conversion. It comes on how they understand the word and how they understand the concept. I don't hold to that view either. And for us Christians, we are a particular kind of Christian. I know I don't like to have to hyphenate. Um, Tony talked about Sunday school. It's when we hyphenate to the exclusion of other brothers that would be and sisters in Christ, that would be a wrong thing. It's almost impossible not to hyphenate. We all believe certain things about the Bible. So you're Baptistic or you're Covenantal or you're Calvinistic or you're Arminian. Yes. And so when we come here, I will have to hyphenate myself how I understand the word conversion. I am an evangelical Christian. I believe Jesus Christ is the evangel. He's the good news. And that God has called me to be an evangelist to give away the good news. I'm a gospel-er. And I believe Christianity is evangelical. Along the lines of John Stott, J.R. Packer, were classic evangelicals. And I know... They differ, and they have some things. Perhaps we would differ with them, but they were classic evangelicals. I'm an evangelical, and I'm a reformed Christian from the Protestant Reformation of the English Puritan stripe. And so, the way I understand Scripture is like these men and brothers and fathers. So, if you say, "Well, you understand it like this," guilty as charged. So, I am giving you what I understand the Bible teaches, and I understand it in an evangelical and a reformed way. So the first thing we need to ask ourselves as far as conversion, and this happens in all churches. Sometimes you go to a church and you think, oh, this is the kind of church you're in. You all believe this. That may be doctrinally what the church is supposed to believe, and maybe the minister and the elders believe it. It doesn't mean that everyone in the church believes it. And so sometimes people, so you guys, you're Calvinist. Yeah, so you don't believe you need to repent in belief. No, you do. But I'm not saying that the person next to you in the pew might not think so. <laughs> that person would be wrong. He wouldn't be me. But he would hold a differing view. And like this, you could meet people in a Calvinist church, a Reformed church, an evangelical church, say, oh no, conversion, that's for the Armenians. We don't do conversion here in this church. No, no, we do conversion here in this church. The Bible speaks about conversion. So the first thing we want to ask ourselves when we are confronted with this conversion is we want to say, is there such a thing? Is there such a thing? 
uh, was it um, uh, A.A. Hodge, well, um, Alexander, I think it was uh, James Alexander, A.A. Alexander, someone confronted him about being born again, and he was raised in a Scotch-Irish home, and it was an old Baptist woman, and he said he never heard the idea of being born again as in a Scotch-Irish home, never heard it. And so he started seeking the scripture. Is there such a thing that the old Baptist woman was saying, you must be born again? And here's this Presbyterian saying, I've never heard this thing. And so where did he go? He went to the Bible. Must you be born again? You must be born again. John chapter 3, 1 through 9. You must be born again. And so the question is not what different churches teach about conversion. Is conversion a biblical thing? That should be our question. And so, is conversion something which the Bible speaks about? Yes. I'm going to read a couple things. This is kind of going to be a thematic sermon. I'm going to read from Psalm 51. It's one of the penitential psalms. It's a sister psalm with Psalm 32. It's one of my favorite psalms. And you can turn there if you'd like. It's really nice. It's Psalm 51. I'm going to begin to read at verse 8. This is after um, David um, kills uh, Uriah the husband of Bathsheba. I don't think he merely commits adultery. I think it's coerced relations, which there's a word for that, but I don't feel like using it. And I, I think that's what he did. And then Nathan the prophet came to him and um, charged him with this sin. And then he writes these particular psalms. Purify me with hyssop, <clears throat> verse 8. <clears throat> you, should, you should read along. This is, this is worthwhile. Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me by a willing spirit. Now look at verse 13. Listen to this. This is the conversion. Then I will teach transgressors your ways. Look at that next section. And sinners will be converted to you. The word for converted there is shub in Hebrew. It means to turn or to return, uh, to turn back. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. So the first thing that we learn is there is such a thing as conversion. It's in the Bible. The Bible does use that word, both in Hebrew and in Greek. And the second thing that we learn, again, very basically about this conversion business, the subjects of sinners, the subject of conversion are sinners. Sinners are the, sinners are the ones that need to be converted, to, to return, to turn. In a very simple definition of, of a sinner is from, found in 1 John chapter 3. All sin is lawlessness. It's the breaking of the law, both omission and commission. Omitting our duty before God and then committing doing sins which God forbids us to do. Uh, and so the object, the subject of, of, uh, of conversion are sinners. Now, the good news is we're all sinners. And we all need conversion and that God will receive us. And so what we're being taught here is that sinners need to be converted. Now, not only does David, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, speak about sinners being converted, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is David's son, 
He comes from David's loins, and he's David's Lord. This is the great mystery of the incarnation of the second person of the Godhead. Um, Matthew chapter 18. Jesus, Jesus, if Jesus says something, the whole Bible should be dipped in red. So if you have a red version, the whole Bible should be dipped in red. It's all inspired. But I, I say sometimes, well, is this really true? Is that really true? If Jesus says something, you, you're on safe ground for going with what Jesus goes with. Am I, am I right with that? I think I am. Matthew 18. You ready for this? This is conversion. And we've already established sinners need to be converted. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and said, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Boy, there's hope for me yet. Here I am, just a lowly OPC pastor, and the apostles are thick as a brick. They don't get it. Who's the greatest? Who's the greatest? Jesus is the greatest. And here are these guys still not getting what the whole program is all about. The whole program is about Jesus and us being servants of Jesus, taking him to the four quarters of the earth. But what do these guys do? So who's going to get the best retirement plan? And um, not even a Cadillac. Cadillac is for the bougie. We need, we need Mercedes or something like that. So who's going to have the best gig in the kingdom? That's what they ask. They're completely missing the program. And get what you, guess, now, now listen to what Jesus says. He says this. He pulls a little boy aside. He calls a child to himself. He sets the child before them and says, Jesus uses his word, amen, amen. Truly I say to you, you ready? This is dealing with conversion. Unless you are converted, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And he uses a word there, which is the counterpart of the Hebrew. This is strepho, means the same thing. It means to turn. It means to turn away. It means to turn back, to return. Those things. Let me read it again. Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like little children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So we have the subjects of conversion are sinners. And here is the necessity of conversion. So this, is not, this is not something ancillary. Our brother teaching Sunday school if you believe you should be dunked in water as a Baptist, praise God, I love you in the Lord. If you believe like me, you should be sprinkled or poured, praise God, I love you in the Lord too. This is minor, minor, secondary, tertiary stuff, but this is not that. The conversion is not like how much water and who gets the water. This is who gets to go to heaven. Jesus says, unless you are converted, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. And he says, truly, amen. So it's not like you're going to, well, nah, I don't think so. No, no. So it's the absolute necessity of being converted, being turned. Remember, we talked about sinners being turned. Now, Acts 3, we're going to get at here the responsibility of humans. I'm going to get to some stuff that I can't fully understand or reconcile. I can tell you what the Bible says. I don't know how to make them perfectly fit. We're going to look at what I'm going to read next in Acts is the necessity, or I'm even going to put it this way, the duty of each individual person to be converted. This is Acts 3, and I'm going to begin to read from verse 17. And now, brothers, this is Peter preaching. He's preaching to people in the Old Testament church, as it were, the household of faith, Israel. He says, men of Israel, now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance. This is killing Christ. Just as your rulers did also. 
But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer and thus was fulfilled, therefore repent and return, or repent and estrepho, be converted, so that your sins will be wiped away. And in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus the Christ according for you. The subject of conversion is the sinner. The necessity of conversion, you must be converted. You must turn from something. You must turn to something. And then the Apostle Peter says, in order that your sins would be forgiven you, and Christ would bring times of refreshment, and so on. So this is a personal responsibility. Our brother George made a comment in Sunday school, and he referenced, I think he did, maybe in his prayer, I I can't remember. The, the, The sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. In conversion, we're going to see both things. Acts chapter 3 is the responsibility of man, that we are responsible to turn from something and turn to God. It doesn't deny the sovereignty of God. God establishes both ends and means, as I'm about to say. So what are we, what are we turning from and what are we turning to? I, I first want to say this. There are two things. If you, I can send you, I will send you my notes. If you're on the church list, I'll send you the notes. So you, there's no need. In conversion, we see one thing first, which precedes our conversion, which is regeneration. This is being born again. This is the John three one through nine. Um, this is the book of Ezekiel depicts being born again this way: that God the Holy Spirit takes out our stony heart, and then He replaces it with a heart of flesh. He takes out a dead spirit. He gives us a living spirit. He gives us the principle of new life. That's what it means to be born again. I wasn't raised believing that you should be born again. In the Catholic Church, you're you're born again when you're baptized. And to use the phrase, I'm a born again in the land of my youth, you were considered a cult person. You, you, You clearly were not going to heaven because you're not a member of the true church. You're using this strange idea of being born again. But the Bible says that you have to be born again. Jesus says, unless you're born again by the Holy Spirit, you're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. Again, not a secondary or tertiary thing. This is a primary thing. What must I do to be saved? How do I go to heaven? Jesus says, you've got to be born again. The Holy Spirit has to do something to you. Take out the dead and give you the, the principle of new life. And from that regeneration, which we are entirely passive, by the way, we're entirely passive. God, the Holy Spirit, does it to us and for us. From that comes our conversion. So we are born again. We have the principle of new life, spiritual life, life from death spiritually. And then we repent of our sins. We turn from them and we turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's our conversion. The repenting of our sins and turning to to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith. That's the conversion. But it flows out of the regeneration. Regeneration, we are passive. And in our conversion, we are utterly active. When we repent, are we repenting of our sins? Yes, thou son of David, have mercy on me. Are we active in receiving Christ, in believing in Christ? We are active. Lord Jesus Christ, save me. Thou son of David, save me. But it flows out of that regeneration. Does that make sense? Some of you all are fans of Martin Lloyd-Jones. I love Martin Lloyd-Jones. He's one of the moderns that that I, 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 I... Mainly I stick to the 1600s and 1700s. Every once in a while, I'll creep into the 1800s and 1900s. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones is a Puritan born out of time. He writes this, dealing with conversion. 
Conversion is the first exercise of the new nature in ceasing from old forms of life and starting a new life. It is the first action of the regenerate soul. That's what it means to be born again and moving from something to something. There's that tube. There's that estrepho idea. That's that conversion idea. And sinners will be converted, returned, or turned to you. So in our conversion, which is what this whole chapter is about, is a turning away from sin. It shows us that the necessity to be turned away, we're on a wrong way, we need to turn from the wrong way, and we need to turn to the right way. And what's the wrong way we all need to be turned away from? In Adam's fall, the the New England primer, in Adam's fall, we sinned all. That's everyone born of Adam, descending from Adam by ordinary generation, of course, accepting Jesus. All of us are born in our mother's womb, conceived in our mother's womb in in sin. We have the, the original sin of Adam imputed to us. And then when we come out of our mother's womb and we live long enough, from, from the principle, the, the life of sin, we have actual sins. In Adam's fall, we sinned all. The road that all human beings need to be turned away from is the road that we're naturally on. And Jesus calls it a broad road. And it's a broad road of sin. It's a broad road of selfishness. I, you know I, I love J.C. Ryle. I probably love him too much. I, I shouldn't love him too much, but I do love him. And he said, watch a, watch a kitten. A kitten plays. And he says, watch a little child. And what does a little child do naturally? And he's, he's trying to get it that people are natural sinners. You don't have to teach them. Mom and dad doesn't need to teach the little child sin. He says the little child just learns to sin, learns to lie, learns to steal. And the older they get, the better at it they get. And so sinners need to be turned away from that broad road of unbelief, of sin, of autonomy, of anti-God, anti-Christ, anti-Bible, anti-holiness, pro-sin. And where will the road that all sinners are on naturally, where will that road go? What does the Bible say? To perdition. Again, this is not, this isn't, um, I like studying secondary tertiary things. The older I get, I like it less. I like, my passions are where my passions lie. This is a fairly significant problem that most folks have. To be born in Adam is to be born on the wrong road, meaning the necessity of being converted, of turning away from one road, being anti-God on the way to hell, and we need to be turned to the narrow road. And beloved, what's the narrow road? The the apostle uses, so it's called the narrow road in Matthew chapter 7, and it's called the narrow gate in Luke chapter 13. Who who or what is the narrow road and who or what is the narrow gate, the straight gate in King James? It's Christ. It's Christ. We need to be... Con- conversion is a conversion, a, a turning from sin in self, in anti-God, to God in Christ. It's a conversion to Christ. That's why I say all the time, probably ad nauseum, Christ is the sum and the substance of the scriptures. Christ should be the sum and the substance. He should be the principal thing, one that a man preach, we, we shouldn't go a day without thinking about how much we love Christ and we need Christ. We are, conversion is conversion to Christ. The, the Ethiopian didn't know Christ and he was in his sin 
And he comes to know God because he comes to know Christ. The Apostle Paul was Saul. He hated Christ. In his conversion, he's turned to Christ. Conversion is to Christ. Not to the OPC, not to the Reformed faith. I love the Reformed faith. Don't bring me my own charges. It's not to Calvin. It's nothing. It's to Christ, Christ, Christ. Even Calvin and Luther, all of these guys wouldn't say, look at me. Who would they say? Be converted and turn to Christ. And so it's a conversion to Christ, but it's a turning from sin. And it's a turning to him. Repentance of sin and faith in him. That's the conversion. And it flows out of that gift of God, the Holy Spirit. The only way we know that we're born again is how. If you, We're Reformed people. We believe in election. Sometimes elect, people that believe in election drive me nuts. I don't have the secret list. No one has the secret list. Do you know how you know if you're elect? If you repent of your sins and believe in Jesus. Well, you sound like a Baptist. No, I sound like a person that believes the Bible. If you repent of your sins and you believe in Jesus, you're one of the elect. You only know by the fruit. It's how do I know how do I know that I've been born again? Are you converted? Have you repented of your sins? And, and do you believe? And so we see these things taught in Scripture. And repentance, I should just say, repentance looks different in every single person. Um, I'm profusely emotional. My, my wife is like John Wayne. And even my kids mock me in the house. They go, Dad's the emotional one. If you're ever really hurting or in need, you call Dad. Mom's stone cold Steve Austin. <laughs> you don't call. So I'm profusely emotional. I get it. And so you may be emotional with your repentance. There may be tears and those kind of things. And maybe, maybe not. Maybe you're Vince Lombardi. I, I, I don't know. But repentance, real repentance, is not just earthly sorrow. Like, boy, feel bad that I feel bad that I'm a schnook. I got caught in my sin. It's not that. It's not your wife catching you on the internet and you just feel bad for being a schnook. Repentance is your, it's what David does in Psalm 51. My heart is broken because I've sinned against God. Oh God, I've sinned against you. Please forgive me. And then we look to Jesus. We apprehend the mercy of God in Christ. It's the difference between Judas and Peter. Judas sold Christ and then dispatched with himself. He never looked to Christ. And, and, and Peter denied Christ. And what did he do? He jumped off a boat and looked to Jesus. So in conversion, it's a, it's a, it's a converting, being converted to Christ. I, I hope that makes sense. Now, God is the effectual cause of the conversion. And what we're saying, the Holy Spirit is the effectual cause. But I, I don't want to pass on too quickly. I'm not a hyper-Calvinist. Hyper-Calvinism is eternal justification. And hyper-Calvinists don't understand that God, not only does God uh, um, uh, determine the ends, the elect will be saved, but he determines the means. So God the Holy Spirit is the effectual cause of our conversion, but what's the instrumental cause or means of our conversion? David says, I will convert sinners unto thee. David says it. David says, forgive me, and I will convert sinners unto thee. When Peter preaches, he says, you be converted. You must be converted. He puts it on the man. That's the instrumental cause. David's not giving the person the new heart. David is the forgiven sinner who's now able to say to sinners, it's Christ who can forgive you. So the Holy Spirit will use the means of one forgiven sinner telling another sinner, 
Repent of your sins. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be forgiven. So the effectual cause of our conversion, but the instrumental means of our conversion. Many people sitting here, if you're raised in a Christian home, your mother, your mother, your mom was the effectual means of your own conversion. She prayed for you while you were in, in her stomach and she taught you the gospel. She prayed that the gospel would be effectual and God heard her prayers and, and sometimes us dads as well. And then true conversion. Now when we come here to the Apostle Paul, you could say, well, John, we use that phrase. Um, don't we use the phrase? I think we do. I've not had the Damascus, on the road to Damascus experience, right? In Presbyterian, all Christians, I'm using Christian as Christian, we all speak in the kind of lingo that's particular to our groups. If you're a Baptist, you speak like a Baptist. In Pentecostal and Presbyterian, we all use our particular lingo. And let's say in a Baptist church, sometimes people think, well, I need a really good testimony. You know what I mean by that? You need to live like a complete wretched, vile, and then you need to have something that happened to Paul. I was going to Swanee Swifty and whammo on the way to pump my gas, whammo, I'm on the ground, I see a vision, whammo, I guess I'm in the Pentecostal church now, and I'm, wow, there you go. And if you don't get that, people looking at you like what? You're not even a Christian. So Paul's an example of an unconverted person when he saw in the household of faith, but we can't look at his conversion as utterly normative. There are things in this conversion of, of Saul Paul that's completely extraordinary that we shouldn't look to be repeated in the life of us ordinary Christians. And what do I mean? You don't have to be struck off your horse or struck down on the ground when you're walking by the risen Lord Jesus Christ and struck blind and hear a voice from Jesus doesn't need to meet you while you're walking to the bathroom, it converts you and knocks you to the ground and starts speaking to you audibly for you to be really converted. So I, I sometimes use hyper-literalism to show how foolish some of these universal statements, well, you have to do like this. Be hyper-literally, and then it shows how foolish some of these arguments are. So there are things which are extraordinary. Paul's extraordinary minister. He's an apostle. So it's, it's unique to him, but there are other things in the conversion of Saul which are normative. Remember that converting uh, word, both in Hebrew and Greek? It's a turning away from and a turning to. That's normative. That, ha that has to happen in the life of any person that is converted. If it doesn't happen, we're not converted. Does that make sense? And what has to happen? Remember what we talked about? You've got to be born again. That's God's business. And then the other thing, which is our business, is... You have to turn from what? Sin. And then turn to God. And now we've returned to God. That has to happen. That's utterly normative. But I want to say this. Who was the guy that said uh, comparison is the thief of joy or something like that? Was Teddy, Teddy Roosevelt? Maybe in, I don't often quote secular people. I think it was Teddy Roosevelt. He was very pithy. Him and Winston Churchill, who had some things I didn't like about him. We all have things we don't like about ourselves. But it was very, very pithy. We're pretty good at comparing ourselves and judging. You know, doesn't the Bible say thou shalt not judge? We have created that to like a kung fu sport. We're so good at it. I'm not judging you, but I'm judging you. And you're always less than me, and I'm always better. <laughs> That's how it works. So we judge people's conversion by going, 
yeah, I don't know. I don't know if you've really repented. Mm, I don't know if you really believe. Mm, yeah, I don't know. Here's the good news. You're not the Holy Spirit. And praise God, I'm not either. We're not. We tend to go, my conversion should be your conversion. And if your conversion isn't like my conversion, you're not converted. That's silly. It, 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 it's silly. If you lived in the pig pen, and then you came to know Jesus, you're going to have a from the pig pen to know Jesus. If you were raised by a godly mom and the dad and you went to church your whole life and you never lived in the pig pen, your conversion is going to look different. It's not that you're not conversion. It just looks different. You're turning from sin and turning to Jesus, though it's the same idea, turning from sin, turning to Jesus is the same, but it looks different. Does that make sense? So God, the Holy Spirit, orchestrates all of these things variously to do the same thing, turning from, to. So let's not be in the judging brothers and sisters business, especially as to whether or not their, their uh, conversion is real. The real question is this, and I'm going to say this and move on to Paul as an unconverted person. The real question is not how were you converted. This is what people get hung up on. How were you converted? Was it on a Thursday? Did you have white socks? Was it really fancy schmancy? Did you start going, whoa, was it like that? We like the extraordinary. That's not the real question. The real question is what? Are you converted? I don't care how, when, where. I don't care if it was a Wednesday or Thursday. Did you come to hate your sin? Did you come to realize it, wasn't, it was not your mom's sin, it was your sin? And did you say, Lord Jesus Christ, forgive me? receive me then you're converted so it's not how it's and then for Paul Paul as I say as I open Saul he's a picture of an unconverted person in verses 1 and 2 he's unconverted in verses 3 through 9 he's converted and I'm going to get through this in the next five minutes we're going to do unconverted Saul in five minutes you think I could do it probably not but let's (laughs) so we're going to do unconverted the reason he's important is here he is Number one, his name means, um, what does his name mean? Asked for. His name in Hebrew means asked for. And likely, what does that teach? He had a believing mom and a dad. And likely, what does that mean? When he has a name that means asked for, that means his mom and dad, probably his mom, did what? Oh God, give me a child. Oh God, send me a child. How many women have prayed to God? God, I want a baby. Please, God, send me a child. It's completely legitimate. Hannah in 1 Samuel, what did she do? She didn't have a child. And her rival used to say, look at all my kids, ha, 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 and you got no kids. And what did she say? Oh, God, give me a child. And I think she even prayed, maybe, maybe Paul's folks, Saul's folks, prayed for the child, and they prayed for a born child, like, like Samuel's mom, Hannah, means grace. She prayed for a boy. And then to commemorate, God answered the prayer, they give this boy, this name, Saul, we prayed for you. I'm going to say something. This is just an application. They give this boy, Saul, a name, essentially saying, we pray to God for you, the God of Israel, the God of heaven and earth, the only God that is, believing mom and dad. All babies are beautiful to their mother. I mean, don't, like when you get baby pictures, don't like compare. Like every mother thinks their baby is prettier than every other mother's baby. That's all true. But all mothers think their babies are, are beautiful. But here's the thing. 
they give their beautiful little Saul, baby beautiful Saul, a name. We pray to God for you. No mother and father knows what their child will be like when they grow up. And I, I mean this. They give him essentially a believer's name. We prayed for you. But they don't know in God's government and in man's sin, this little Saul will grow up and he will be a hater of God. He will hate Christ. He will hate those who love the Messiah of Israel and he'll try to stomp them out. See, babies are only beautiful when they're little babies because we're looking at their outward beauty. The older we get, the more we grow, what, what, what else grows? Our sin. And then we're not beautiful. And we need to be converted. So the parents can give a name, but they can't convert. And unless sin is arrested and changed, it's going to grow and grow and grow. So he's raised by a believing mom and dad. He's, he's a Jew. So he is a Jew at this time. He's in the household of faith, but he's unconverted. And I'm going to, the application is, I'm in the Christian church and you're unconverted. So it's possible to be a Jew in the Old Testament church and be unconverted. You're not born again. You don't know God. You don't know Christ. You're in your sins. And here's the, here's the, the, the thing. And not know it. And not know it. Saul had the word and he had the sacraments and he was a teacher of these things. He said he was a, a leader of people to God. But he's unconverted. He had the best of teachers. Gamaliel was his teacher. Um, he was a Pharisee of the strictest sect. When you looked at Saul in his unconverted estate, and you're just a regular run-of-the-mew Jewish, Jewish person, what would you say? That guy's on his way to heaven. Christians now in the New Testament church, we've heard Christ's sermons against Pharisees, Matthew chapter 23, so much. We hear the word Pharisee, and what do we think? They're all going to hell. They're all going to hell. But it wasn't like that in Christ's day. The regular folk, when they heard Pharisee, Pharisaism, what did they think? These are the people that go to heaven. These are the guys that go to heaven. They read their Bible 24 hours a day. They fast 24 hours a day. They flagellate themselves 24 hours a day. They give to the Sisters of Mercy 24 hours a day. They, they're super Christians. And, and Paul says as much in Philippians chapter 3. He says, not only am I a Jew, I come from the tribe of Benjamin, and I'm a Pharisee, and a zeal to the law, no one touches me. And everyone thought, if anyone's going to heaven, it's Saul of Tarsus. And he thought he was going to heaven. And here's the, here, here's the dangerous thing. But he wasn't. He was unconverted. In the church, circumcised, took the Passover. He was a teacher. You could be baptized. You could take the Lord's Supper. You could be a minister. Telling people, here's how to go to God. And he doesn't know how to go to God. A teacher of the Bible, but he doesn't understand the Bible. I want to read this to you. J.C. Ryle. Paul was a teacher of the Bible. We do need to make application of this. When Paul was Saul, unconverted, he taught the Bible. But he doesn't know Jesus yet. J.C. Ryle said this, Take away the cross of the Christ, the cross of Christ, and the Bible is a dark book. If you don't understand the cross, which is the essence of the gospel, you don't understand the Bible. Ralph said again, the key to understanding the Bible is Jesus Christ. Another man wrote this, the deity of Christ is the key doctrine of the scriptures. Reject it 
and the Bible becomes a jumble of words without any unifying theme. And here's the application. Reading the Bible and even knowing where certain Bible passages are is not the same thing as knowing the Bible. There are a lot of people that profess to be teachers of the Bible that have no business teaching anybody because they don't know Christ because they're not converted. And the responsibility of the individual Christian is what? Not to listen to them. They're blind guides leading people into a ditch. The last thing I want to point out about the Apostle Paul in his unconverted state, what is he doing? He's busy rounding up Christians. It says, breathing out murderous threats. He himself will say that he did this in Galatians chapter 1, I think, where he, he is sitting there in chapter 7, holding the coats of people that stoned to death, Stephen, and he says this. This is a good thing. This is Saul. Would you hold the coats of the people that was stoning an innocent holy man to death? And if you did, what would happen to you? You would be up on charges for accessory to what? Murder. Here's a Pharisee. Pharisee means the separate one. I'm righteous. I'm separate from sin. I'm separate from you all. I do good works. Tons of good works. I I tithe my dill. I tithe my mint. Boy, howdy, it's good. And you know what my good works include? Murdering people. That's man. That's man. Unconverted people have a low view of God. They have a low view of God's law. And they have a high view of what? And here's the jam. He's not a righteous man. He's a murderer. He's a murderer. He murdered Stephen. And his blood was not enough. What did he do? I need more. And I need more. I'm going to chase women. I'm going to chase children. I'm going to chase men. I'm going to catch them all. I'm going to chase them from Jerusalem to Damascus. And I'm going to put them in prison. And then I'm going to kill them. Beloved, that's the natural man. Someone told me this week, you know, people are good. And people are seeking God. And, you know, people really are good at, at, at their heart. unconverted people when you put against them the touchstone of Christ when you use the name Christ Jesus is God come in the flesh it's only him that takes us to heaven that will reveal what they really are they're wolves they're wolves but what's the good news Jesus Christ changes wolves into what lambs Jesus Christ takes wolves and turns them into lambs. When you look at this fellow, when you look at this fellow, there's a, there's, a, there's a very famous man. He's an influencer. I just learned this year what an influencer is. I'm 58, so now I can use the term like influencers. And I didn't know what it was a few months ago, and then I t- was taught what an influencer... It's guys that sit on the internet and like make people watch them. And there's, um, I guess... There's a movement of men want people to be super manly to them. They go on, they're like manly men influencers. And they influence, you know, you're going to like, I don't know, wear checkered shirts and boots like a lumberjack or something. You're manly men. 
and the kids that want to be manly men watch them. You know what would be better, just as an aside? Maybe if their dad stayed married to their mom so they didn't need some stranger online to tell them how to be a manly man. Maybe if they watched dad wake up and go to work and stay faithful to the wife. No extra charge for that. So there's an influencer that said this that I watched. He's a really, he's a tough guy. He's probably like the most influencer, manly influencer. You guys will know who he is, but I'm not going to tell you his name. He said, if there's any religion I wouldn't convert to is Christianity. Because it's a bunch of mamby-pamby, their leader dies on a cross. And he says, if there's a religion I would convert to, it's the religion of what? Go ahead. And guess what he just converted to? And you know why he said? Your religion, your Jesus dies. And their religion, they get to do what to you? Kill you. And I want to be a manly man, and I'm going to choose a manly man's religion. That's unconverted religion. It's a wolf telling you how to be a wolf to stay a wolf. Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God. He dies to make wolves into what? Lambs. Beloved, that's the truth. And if you watch this guy online, stop it. May God be pleased with the preaching of his word. (laughs) 